0: Welcome to Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Robbie Straczynski. Thank you so much for joining us on episode number 123 of Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town. Today's guest holds a special place in poker lore, having racked up the most caches in the history of live ranking tournament poker, as of this interview being recorded, that stands at over six hundred twenty-five caches, according to the Hendon Mob. And of course, we're talking about Miami John Sunudo on today. On today's show, we will take a tour through his illustrious poker career, and we'll also get to learn about him and his life away from the felt. John, welcome to the Cards Chat podcast. Hey, thanks
1: for having me on. I just have uh, one thing to ask you: Why am I number one twenty-three? Why wasn't I sooner? <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's, that's an excellent. And, we just got to the Jays. We could talk to John. Uh, and there you go. <laughs> an excellent. You, you made me think of a funny story
1: about the Jays because sure. one time I'm playing at WTP LA Classic event 10,000 buy in. Mm-hmm. And on day two, I'm going to my table and there's a seat open, but my table's down a little further. And John Joanna's sitting at the table and he said, you're probably over here. I said, no, I'm down the way. And he said, no, you're probably here because they have us listed in alphabetical order as my first name. <laughs> so there's Johnny Chan, Johnny World, John Jowanda, John Esposito. I said, well, sorry to disappoint you guys, but I'm not here. Right. They put me in the M's oh, with Michael with Miami John. <laughs> Miami. <laughs> so I got to play with like the mics, which were much better than the Johns. That's <laughs> and they objected so vehemently that after the first break, first two hours we played, they redrew everybody. It was pretty that's funny. Hilarious. They were that's, all pissed off.
0: That's I kind of like the mics.
1: How long ago was this? Well, before Matt Savage took over at the LA. Got the it. Business, okay. The tournament director, her name was Sherry, and that's what she did that day, and just everybody went crazy. That's wow. Funny. Goodness. Hey. I didn't remember that story, but... Uh,
0: and, yeah, I'm and, glad I got moved. <laughs> that's good. And Matt is, uh, you know, one of our very avid listeners. He listens to all the shows. So Matt, I hope you enjoyed uh, that one, that one. Um, so, you know, I have over 625 results and, you know, we could do this entire show just based on me asking questions that revolve around those results. We're not going to do that, don't worry. But, you know, obviously some questions will come from there. I want to start with something a little different though. Um, it sort of said, it's kind of known that, even elite poker players cash in only about 20 percent of maybe 15 to 20 percent of the tournaments they play. Is that something that sort of has held true for you over the years? Yeah, I guess if you average it out, I'd say that's about
1: correct. I had years where I was, uh, if I played seven tournaments, I cashed three times. It was like three, three out of seven. Amazing. And then I had years where, you know, not so productive, where you know, maybe one out of six was a cash. you know. Right. And then if you go where you don't finish top three, you know, you're struggling then, you know, you start coming in sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth. I mean, it's good that you cash, but, you know, you're not getting to the top. Right. So every year was different. Uh, and uh, I also play a lot of cash games during the, uh, during the
0: 1990s and the early 2000s. So that, mm-hmm. that kind of was my bread and
1: butter back okay. in those days.
0: But just to to sort of extrapolate the math, so if you've cashed six hundred twenty five times, it's not unthinkable to say you've played in the neighborhood of three thousand live tournaments, possibly even more. It seems reasonable. Wow, that's that's I a lot of tournament. I don't have
1: them. I don't have like uh, a lot of the players who are like the top money list. Right, they have the money column win. They don't have the loss column. Right. <laughs> so I still I'm ahead of the game. You know, uh, I, I'd like to think so anyway. That's I still have a bankroll, so we're good.
0: There you go. It's always good to still have chips and and, and, uh, be in the game. Um, Oh, yeah. By at least one measure, obviously, you've had more success than anyone else in history in tournament poker. Can you describe from your unique perspective, what does it feel like when you bust out before making the money as opposed to busting out after making it into the money? Or is it the same thing?
1: all depends it all depends on like just the other day on level seven at a local tournament I had 250,000 in chips, which was average was 38 and I said there's no way that I'm not going to you know win this thing and I was convinced I barely made the money I mean it's like I came in 15th and they paid 15 spots so you never know how it's going to go now, usually, if it's a really bad beat and you're really close, I think that's when you feel it the most. You know, in the beginning, of the tournament it's not so bad, but when it's, you know the last table or two, and especially if it's for a big amount or it's the bubble time, you know, it feels like getting slapped across the face with a two by four. It's oh, really, goodness. really hurts. You know, right. And then once you're in the money, uh, you're still a little disappointed, or maybe a lot disappointed. And to be honest with you, I've been disappointed coming in second. And the main reason is, a lot of times you make a deal. But one, a few times I've won it and I had no deal. And to me, that's like floating on a cloud. Uh. That's like the best feeling in the world. No deal, want all the money. You know, it's great. It's great. But anything short of that is uh, can be disappointing. But uh, my ex-wife had told me that uh, the way to handle those situations is to not. That the high get too high and the lows get too low, and I was a very uh, emotional player in the beginning. And I certainly, wow, I win a hundred thousand dollars in this tournament. You know, I'm, I'm unbeatable. I'm the greatest. You know, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden you get a taste of reality, and you don't yep. win anything. And then you're down. You know, oh, I suck, man. I'll never be good. You know, so you got to find a happy medium. You know, sure. to be successful, you, you can't you can't let it uh, let the highs get too high, and you you know you feel invincible, and you make mistakes or the lows two get low and you feel depressed and you make too many mistakes. That's that's
0: such an important lesson for anyone listening to this, you know, whether you're a pro or an amateur or someone taking the game more seriously. At what and obviously, you know, you, you've learned that lesson long ago. At what point do you think that lesson kind of like, you know, the penny dropped for you? Was it, you know, you I guess you were already a pro, uh, but at what point did that sort of happen where you know, you became that more mild-mannered, less emotional player. It
1: rated it resonated with me. Probably, I mean, I hate to admit this, but with the explosion of television, mm. it kind of brought me to my senses because now you kind of got beyond your best behavior, you know, and you can't get too emotional. So I really toned a lot of it down. So that was helpful, but I was already metamorphosing into a better, more controlled player. Mm -hmm. And certainly reading articles, uh, talking to other players. I remember talking to Mike Mm Manisell once, and he said, uh, John, I never make eye contact with you. I don't even know who's in the box. I said, how is that possible? (laughs) How can you do that? I'm very emotional. I'm very Italian. And uh, so, you know, talking to Mike about that, little things like that, they add up after a while. Now, where I was maybe behaving well 30% of the time, uh-huh. I'm behaving well 95% of the time. Excellent. So it's it's all good. There's a learning curve. I of to, course. I wasn't a natural at it. Of course. Uh, you know, like if I could give you a couple of examples of, to the yeah. men I respect the most would be Ted Forrest and Eric Seidel. Mm-hmm. Those two guys were princes and nothing ever bothered those two guys. And that's mm-hmm. who I tried to be more like. And I kind of like um, they were kind of like my role models in that area,
0: especially. Very cool. Um- you obviously play all the games not just holdem do you approach mixed game tournaments differently than holdem tournaments in some way uh, i actually approach them the
1: same because to me it's not about mixed game versus holdem if that's what you're talking about yeah but the difference is limit poker versus no limit poker that's right. that's when i approach it a little bit differently so um The night before no limit if it's a substantial buy-in i'll go over my notes Mm -hmm. i'll try to read uh see a blog anything that will get me focused towards the game Mm -hmm. and uh but going over my notes and uh talking it over with friends you know did i do something wrong here you know a a little bit of a learning curve i review all that stuff you know the night before Uh, on the daily tournaments that i play almost you know five six seven, seven times a week not so much Mm -hmm. But uh, to me, there there are some factors uh, between the 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 two conditions, and one is uh, game knowledge. Mm -hmm. You have to have a good knowledge of the game to be able to play it right. You know, so whether it's limit hold'em, no limit hold'em, you have to have this you know this kind of knowledge, and uh, game selection. Now we don't have uh, in a tournament to be able to select our tables. It's already our our customers are already there. So no limit requires uh, a quicker adaptation of who you're playing against, what they're like, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, are they, are they loose? Are they tight aggressive? Are they, you know, have to go through that. And that takes a little bit of time. So um, in no limit, I mean, in limit, in uh, limit tournaments, Mm -hmm. like course and things like that, to me, that's like second nature i don't even think about it mm-hmm. so you know I, I i can respond more appropriately so i i do tend to treat no limit differently than than the limit games that's how yeah. i would categorize it anyway right and then also money management is extremely important too mm-hmm. sure you know you shouldn't be playing above your means because then you're going to play scared and they're going to sense it and they're going to pick on you and you know so stay within your means is my best suggestion to anybody
0: wise words absolutely um so how do i ask this one let's think um hmm. okay you that's can't think of a question then maybe i can't think of the answer no because i had because I, I had an interesting follow-up on that one with the okay good uh go ahead. at least i thought it was an interesting follow-up one second i'm sure it is <laughs> <laughs> Uh, i'm 79 okay you need to help
1: me in this interview not the other way i got it
0: i got it so you had said that you do prepare uh before a tournament poker has evolved obviously over many years so has the study of poker at what point you know or was it right from the beginning that you felt okay i need to study i need to prepare as opposed to just sort of i know how to play i know my game i'll go by feel like at what point did you sort of that switch and realize okay i need to keep working on my game continuously yeah that's a
1: very easy answer to question answer when you go broke oh wow okay so i started uh as a fired air traffic controller Mm -hmm. so i was basically a government employee right and the only game experience that i had was home games yeah so i came to vegas figuring you know, I'm pretty damn good at home, you know? So I got this mentality that, you know, this is going to be a piece of cake. I'm just going to become be a professional poker player. Yep. That was my dream. Even during the strike, I didn't, at the time I didn't care about the job I do now. But uh, back then I said, you know, screw it. I lose my job. I'm going to Vegas. That's the way I felt about it. Mm-hmm. So I go out there and there are people that have read Super System and the, and Davis Kalansky and things like that, and I'm and just thrown in with, with the, the sharks, you know. So I think I'm, I'm, you know, pretty cool player, and I know what's going on, but yet I don't know Jack, mm-hmm. you, know? you know. to me, nine deuce suited is a reasonable hand to play. Hand I played it. <laughs> uh, most of the it was limit Hold'em was the main game back then. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't have card player back then the way we do now. There was right. a card player. There was uh, June Fields was mm-hmm. the uh, owner of the magazine, mm-hmm. but it wasn't filled with a whole bunch of knowledge and strategy like you know Barry Schumann and Linda Johnson brought that into Card Player. Mm-hmm. So, I didn't have any really materials, um, you know, to read. But so I had friends that mm-hmm. would say, "Well, John, you you could play a pair of nines with by three betting," and it never really occurred to me, you know. So, you know, I would try it, you know, even I tried it with deuces, you know, right. And sometimes they worked and sometimes it didn't. So mm-hmm. I think they were my friends, you know, you know, poker players, they could be sitting <laughs> know. So, uh, but anyway, that's what I call the school hard knocks. So I was knocked around for two and a half years. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, even as an amateur, the exact pay I made playing poker was the same as air traffic controller. Wow. I know, I couldn't believe it. Well, back then we didn't get paid that much. Oh,
0: because so air, air traffic controllers
1: are very highly
0: paid Yeah, they're making $150,000 here.
1: Yeah. Back then my high was about 35000
0: Okay, back well, the, that, that was horrible the... for back then, I guess. Yeah, for, exactly, for exactly. At At what point did you consider yourself to be a true professional poker player? I mean, obviously it's what you did for a living, but at what point did you say, okay, I'm good at this, this is how I'm going to continue and make you know, my living for the rest of my life? Sure.
1: Um uh, so getting back to the first question, mm-hmm. when I got busted mm. after two good years and then within six months, running bad, playing bad, whatever, I hardly made any money, my bankroll didn't hold up and I was out of funds. So at that time, I went back and I said, I'm done with this. So I said goodbye to my new friends and I drove all the way back to Daytona Beach mm. and I got a job. Like That's all I know how to do, I got a job, right? And um, my only skills was air traffic, and they were I was uh, blackballed from being rehired by President Reagan right. and his crew. So I got a job as a dispatcher. At least I could talk on the microphone, you know? So, you know, like being a 911 operator and things sure. like that. And uh, I did that for about nine or 10 months. And then a good friend of mine, his name is, he's, no, he's not with us any longer, Bobby Romanes, called me and says, hey, Las Vegas Hilton is opening up dealer jobs. And Tom Bowling is having the room. At the time, Tom Bowling was a big name. He says, why don't you come out and you know come back? Mm-hmm. So I drove all the way back to Las Vegas, mm-hmm. took the job dealing at the Las Vegas Hilton. At that particular time, uh, I realized there's more to the game than what I thought, home game mentality. Uh, you know, I, I I was a kind of a player who learned from his mistakes. Mm-hmm. But uh if you didn't learn from your mistakes, you're in a lot of trouble in poker. Everybody knows that. You know? Right. So I learned like through the school of hard knocks. At that time, playing poker again as a dealer, and you know when you get off, you play a couple hours and stuff like that. I realized if I'm going to make money at this game, why would I give all my tips away to all these other players? I got to take the game more serious. Mm-hmm. So I just did. So I uh, there was a little more more material back in those days. Mm-hmm. I read the Super System, which you know was very helpful. Thank you, Doyle and Chip. Um the um uh, after about three months of dealing I said, I want to be a proposition player a proposition player is the house pays you it's not a good job by the way it's like it was decent I forget how much per hour it was, maybe 25, 30 bucks an hour. so it's better than dealer pay, right but you had to play your own money. They didn't you know you I wasn't a shell was sure a sure. So I'd get in to the worst games right when the game got good, I have to get out.
0: Right, so,
1: for the customer, so didn't like that part too much. Uh, <laughs> but I was forced to play Raz, which I knew a little bit about from my days at Stardust. So I played Raz, and then they wanted me to uh, prop uh, 1530 Seven Cards stud A to better, which is my first bracelet, right? And mm-hmm. I said, I tried, I said, I don't like this game, I don't really understand it. I'm just <laughs> putting my money, so I quit because of that. Wow. So, so Fast forward maybe a month or two later after I had quit. Well, actually, I didn't quit then, I, I kept on. Uh-huh. But there was a tournament called the Amarillo Super Bowl of Poker. Mm-hmm. at Caesar's Palace, went wire to wire in a sediment. $48,000 was a monster win back in those days. And that's when I really started to take the game more serious and more professional. Mm-hmm. Uh, I played well, I got lucky when I had to. And I think I lost one pot the whole day. I mean, it was just one of those days. You know, wow. Guess, uh, the sun and the moon were on my side. What can I tell you? And Goodness. I'd say that's when I, I realized I was never a professional at all during the first three years. I really uh-huh. wasn't. You know, uh, the uh, School of Hard Knocks, the learning experience, you know, we didn't have internet back then. So you have guys playing thousands and thousands, millions of hands. They can get in one year, Five years of my type of experience. Sure. You know, they get it like that. And they mm-hmm. become much better than I could ever be, you know. Wow. So that's when I started. It's mm-hmm. Reading more, uh, learning more. It just was a uh, learning curve that I just always improved to this day. I right. Still have room for improvement. So somebody
0: a... thinks they know it all. They're crazy. <laughs> and that's someone with decades of experience talking. So I want to ask that's you true. about that specifically about the the learning aspect. Obviously, you know, ideally, you want to be playing at a table where you know you're the best player. On the other hand, it's also nice to a degree to play against players who really do challenge you. Do you have a preference? Preference of what? Well, again, because if you're playing against players who you know you're better than, obviously you're going to make some money. If you're playing against players who challenge you, it gives you the opportunity to learn, to put you in interesting spots, to improve your game. So, do you have a preference between one or the other? Those sorts, those sorts of those. When it comes games? to making money, I choose option A. When okay. When it comes to learning the game and being a better player, I take B. That's
1: fair. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. That is. And I do cool learn thing. from. I do learn from you know good players. Uh, a few of them are willing enough to to share, mm. and I try to you know, and I do that with players that are coming into the games, especially mixed games, and I help them out, you know, sometimes some people say I help too much, but that's just the kind of person I am. I don't mind doing that, um, right. but to answer your question, definitely uh, you're gonna learn from playing with the tough guys because mm-hmm. they always put you in harm's way, you know? Mm-hmm. So I feel they'll take me out of my comfort zone. In limit games, I'm the one putting people in harm's way. I feel right. more confident
0: like that. So, right. So that that's how I would choose that. that that's okay, true. that's fair. Uh, I couldn't help but look all the way back to result number one that you had, ranking, the ranking cash back in 1987. Uh, you came in 21st in a $500 No Limit Hold'em event in Las Vegas. And I noticed another player who cashed there was uh, in a Poker Hall of Famer, Maury Escondani. Do you remember uh, the first time you cashed uh, in a poker tournament? Oh, and was that the first time or just, you
1: know. You bring this up because uh, I was just at an interview for a Spanish magazine. Oh, asked awesome. me the exact same question. Oh, no I'll kidding. Give you, I'll give you the exact same answer. Okay. Move Hell, no, no, I don't remember anything about that because it wasn't my first. Hello. Okay. I played tournaments back in 1983, 84, 85, 86. None of those are recorded anywhere. hmm you know? So I, I played at the Las Vegas Hilton. I played at the Stratosphere, which was called Vegas World back then. I played at the Golden Nugget. I mean, some of them are recorded, but, you know, I played a lot of turns. I played at the Stardust. I played in a promotion one time that lasted for nine months. Nine months. Wow. We, we played two tournaments a day, six days a week. Can you imagine that? Uh,
0: no, I that, can't. You know, that's unbelievable. That's not on the records.
1: Is right. No way. So I remember my first tournament was 1983. I won $3,000 in a hmm. limit Hold event and they put it in a newspaper and i don't remember the newspaper probably called poker news but not today's poker news right at all and it was a periodical so it just looked like a newspaper you know uh-huh. and uh it was my picture you know and i just felt like ah oh, this is really nice you know i feel like i'm part of a community now hmm. you know I, I i really enjoyed it and that was my first dose of I don't want to call it fame, but I was recognized. You know? Notoriety, yeah, it meant a lot to me.
0: Sure. That one
1: I remember. Maury, no clue. Although I knew <laughs> Maury always tried to run over me and stud. You know, he'd have pocket deuces and he would three bet me, and then he'd always catch a deuce. You know, and I'd always yell at him. You know, that's back of my house days. I said, "Yo, you know, I got aces, Maury, and yeah, you three bet me with this piece of crap." You know, I
0: but Maury's a wonderful guy. You know, I he's he's lovable. You know, sure. Uh, well, you know, looking back at an illustrious career, you know, again, uh, besides the caches, just looking all together, you've cashed at least in the recorded results for over eight uh, $6 million. So those are the ones that are recorded. Uh, your biggest win, you know, you took down the WSFP bracelet event. You've got plenty of hardware accolades. When you look back, what is more sort of the highlights for you? Is it, you know, the recognition, the fame, the trophies, or, you know, some big wins or even maybe... You made a deep run and hit fourth place, but for, you know, you were only expecting to barely cash or something. What, you know, what stands out to you the most? Prior, prior to the Hendon Mob, keeping track
1: of, of us and card player and all that kind of stuff, didn't really pay attention, didn't really care. You mm-hmm. know, I kept my own poker books, my own records, and and that's where I got my pride from. Oh, I'm doing good, I'm doing bad. You know, that's where, you know, I I could feed myself off of that. Uh, when Hendon Mob came along, all of a sudden, you know your name's out there you're being recognized i got an award right believe that
0: the, the icon know, award for the most cash. You know?
1: yeah so that was kind of exciting and uh i got the same it was award the same day johnny chan got a all-purpose award and it was an honor sitting at the table with johnny and uh and then i noticed uh what was his name um, another older player and i can't remember frank frank casella uh-huh. uh, you know frank and uh so everybody at my table, and I had a doctor friend of mine and this lovely wife, Dawn, that were there. And we're all, you know, like, they're in their 50s and 60s. And I don't know, but Johnny's in his 60s or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, like, 74, 75. And then I made a, a little speech and I said, let's see, uh, I got one problem with the end of my life. You put all the old guys on one table, you know, not a little bit like age discrimination. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so that got a little bit of a laugh. And uh, that was a highlight. But now you get so much recognition for it when people come up to you and they congratulate you. And, you know, it's very respectfully done. It's uh, it makes you feel good about yourself. That's Mm -hmm. all I can say. You know, I don't I don't have a issue with like, oh, I'm the best or, you know, uh, I'm the best at the game or, you know, I'm not that kind of a person. But it's nice to be recognized, you know, without you tooting your own. Sure. shooting your own flag or shooting your own horn. Sure. Think, you know, it's,
0: it's pretty cool. Well, over the course of a tournament, uh, you, know, you often have to change gears. So we'll switch gears a little bit with this question. Uh, if you're just listening, folks, you don't see that over John's right shoulder, he's got a couple bottles of wine, which makes me want to ask, what do you do to decompress? How do you have fun when you're not playing, John? <laughs> Go to a local bar and have a Jack and Diet play a little bit of video
1: poker or some keynote you know okay. like all the other degenerates <laughs> not really a degenerate but uh you know I've had uh friends male female and we'll go out and have a drink once in a while and we have fun that does make things lighter doesn't put you in best frame of mind the next day if you have too much but you know right now the wine this is a little benefit from playing at the Orleans you know I've met a lot of nice people down there I, uh-huh. I play there quite often and uh there's a wine distributor there, his name is Steve, and I won't give his last name. He might get mad at me. I don't know. Sure. But he always gives me a box of wine whenever I need it, you know.
0: Oh, that's And so nice. charge
1: me a thing. So thank you, Steve. So there's a lot of other benefits to poker. You meet a yeah. lot of nice people and a lot of, you know, and uh, Steve's a wonderful guy. And I'm glad I got to meet him. He's just one of a list of a hundred that I could say that I met. And I was just so fortunate and grateful that I met all these people. That's really beautiful, good. Go. That's <laughs> beautiful. I love hearing it. There um, shady ones along
0: the way, but we'll talk about. <laughs> <it>. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. Uh, well, obviously, another uh, legend. We, we, you know, folks, we are recording. You know, you're going to hear this about a month after we record, but we're we happen to be recording uh, the day after. Uh, you know, Doyle Doyle Brunson uh, passed away, so I did have a a Doyle question for you. you now he said, John, back you know many times back in the day. WSOP was the best time of the year with the juiciest cash games. And obviously, there's plenty of side action during the big tournaments, uh, you know, during the summer these days as well. But he said that, you know, back in the day, because the cash games were so good, he didn't play in as many tournaments. How do you approach cash games in general? Because obviously, you're known for your tournament prowess. So what is your approach to cash games? And does that matter whether it's WSOP time or a different time of the year? Are,
1: let me speak about that time at Ur. I came in on a very kind of like the tail end of it when I first started. Mm-hmm. So uh, Doyle obviously was a very recognizable person. And uh, the, the game selection that they had at the Horseshoe and the Dunes, you know, where uh, Doyle played uh, with Chip and Johnny Moss and all those great old, older players um, was uh, just a different era. And they had bankroll back then when I came to town, you know, I I had my retirement pay. That's all. Uh I I didn't have that kind of money. That's number one. Number two, can you imagine the likes of Chip and Doyle with the game knowledge and the game selection and the smart money that they had against the type of players that came in town to play recreationally with big money. You had drug dealers you had bookies galore, and they were just like good old boys, and they would just throw their money around, you know, kind of like got a hunch, bet a bunch type people, you know. <laughs> so Doyle and Chip and them just ate those guys alive. You know? right. I mean, I was I wasn't there to observe it all, but you know, I think had I been there at that time with a banquet like that, I probably would have gone down the same path as Doyle. Huh. However, I didn't. So what I did was get really interested in tournaments. To me, uh, Mike Seeker used to have a saying about tournaments, a toothpick to make a lumberyard. So in other words, a small investment to to get a a lumberyard, to get a a big bankroll. So that's the avenue I took. As my bankroll grew, I also played tournaments. I played in the top games for two decades. Not as high as the Chip Doyle. You know, they were like, two levels above me in, in terms of uh, the blinds. Let's put it that way. The
0: cash games, right. I was, my
1: average game was two, hundred, three 600 with a kill, things like that. That's what I did for like almost 20 years mm-hmm. and did fairly well at it. But the competition, the passion of a tournament was no match for a side game. So I took that path. So when I did get to have a decent bankroll that I could actually do both, I did both and I mm-hmm.
0: did both fairly well. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, you're obviously pretty well known. We've talked about your extensive resume. And I imagine that because of that, and you said, you know, it's nice to get recognized and people come up to you polite when they're playing with you in a tournament, kind of by definition, that's that, you know, that kind of puts a target on your back. When you notice that happening, does that make it easier for you to play or more difficult and more distracting for you to
1: play? Well, number one, I'm not Phil Helmut so there's a guy with a target in his back you know self-imposed but yes definitely a target on his back uh-huh. me not so much I just get people that uh, uh, they do want to play with me they do want to have a story to tell but it's not that bad with me I don't get it that bad not like Phil or any of the other really really top names and I'll tell you another person who's not uh, well he's a professional poker player and that's James Woods the actor uh-huh. he says it is worse than Helmuth. He says, I can't play a hand without anybody wanting to have a James Wood story. (laughs) Oh, I shoved seven days up, James Wood. James Wood, you know what, you know? (laughs) It says it's constant, John, you know? And James and I became very, very close friends over the years and, uh, you know, we've helped each other in life and poker and uh, he's a really great guy and glad I got to know him, you know? That's wonderful,
0: Well, it's good. But uh, yeah, I don't get a lot of that. I get it sometimes, but it's not enough to make a difference. Okay, that's fair. well, one thing, you know, it's it's known, again, through a poker tournament. And, you know, Doyle said also at some point, I'm not playing the main event anymore. It's just, you know, so many days straight and so many hours. Stamina is so critical when playing in a tournament, whether it's multi-days or single days or something like that. I agree. Someone That's why I to- quit playing the main event myself. It's been okay years now. Okay, Okay. So- and I, I
1: know that at 8.30 on day one at night, so we've been playing for eight hours, I gave my chips away. I was too tired to go mm-hmm. on. And, you know, I do have a lot of stamina. I play okay. day after day after day, after day in tournament after tournament, you know, no problem. But I can't go 10 days after I've already had 40 days of WSOP right. around the town of Las Vegas poker day, you know, day after day, tournament after tournament, cash games in between. You know, that's a lot of stamina. I'm lucky to have that kind of energy. But I can't do it, do a main event spotting everybody 40 days of you know, exhausting type
0: playing, play. And that's fair. And, and you know, but like you say, though, and again, it's just, it's astonishing and just so impressive and inspiring. You so you're lucky to have that energy, but, you know, folks like me in our 40s, you know, folks in their 30s, 20s, even 60s are like, hey, look at you and you're like, wow, how does he do it day in and day out and playing? I mean, you know, just recently I saw you win a tournament. It was whatever, three o'clock in the morning or something after having started oh, yeah. it too. I mean, that, you know, are there things that you do sort of like mindfulness or watching your health? Are there things that you do? Any tips you could advise for people, you know, who will someday get to your age to hopefully have the type of sanity?
1: Yeah. So health is number one. You can't, you know, I just came from the gym. Uh-huh. Right? So every night I work out there, I'm an old guy and the guy said, I make old age look good on his shirt. <laughs> I said, Hey buddy, how old are you? he goes, 91. And he said, wow. "I got a six-pack."
0: Well, wow. six
1: but I was impressed. That's the kind of mentality that you need. You need to uh, you need to exercise. You need to keep your mind healthy. Uh, shouldn't drink as much as I do, but you know, I mean, I'm not a drunk or anything like that. Of but course. I don't. You know, I socialize a lot. I have sure, money. sure. Uh, so that kind of advice is always good. Exercise is key. You know, the best medicine in the world isn't what the doctor prescribes you. It's diet and exercise.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: that's what keeps me going. At 79, I hope I make it to 89 like Doyle did and then add the money that that man had, you know? Speaking <laughs> of Doyle, I wanted to tell you one story. Sure. What I admired most about Doyle was his spirit, is willing to gamble to mix it up, you know? I'm in a game, not a good game. I'm playing Tommy Fisher and Billy Baxter three-way, three and 600, or at the Bellagio, I think. So Doyle's sitting there talking golf stories to Tommy Fisher. They sit behind him, so I think uh, yeah. Uh, Billy had the button. Mm-hmm. He raised. What what game are you playing? I'm sorry, Badoogie. Badugi, Badugi, Badugi okay. is four different suits. Mm-hmm. The lowest hand wins. So Triple the draw, nuts right. is ace, two, three, four rainbow, and you got three shots to make it. You know yep. that's what we tell all the suckers. Oh, it's an easy game. All you got to do is make one, two, three, four. No, but we don't tell them about the decisions they got to make along the way. Sure. <laughs> so anyway, I three bet and Tommy Fisher folds and Doyle says, excuse me, you guys care if I play that hand? He's playing Tommy Fisher's throwaway cards. Tommy Fisher was a really good player and you know, he wasn't, he was smart money you know, so but and quite the golfer. So Billy Baxter is sitting there with almost the nuts. He's got ace, two, three and he says, "No, Doyle, I don't care. Come on in." Uh-huh. <laughs> Doyle plays his own money, makes the call, and then uh, we do a, a little more raising on the on the first draw. And by the second draw, Billy still got one, two, three, and I got like ace, deuce, four, six, a doogie. So Wow, basically, nuts. that's a lot. Yep. Finally, we get we rid ended. Doyle. Doyle's still drawn too. but uh, you gotta admire, you know, the guy's spirit there. So... <laughs>
0: He's not a it Not not afraid to to give some action. No, not afraid to mix it. it up. I love it. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. Rest. Um, you know, obviously you've been around for you know well before the money maker area, and you witnessed that moment that live poker kind of changed forever because of so many online qualifiers and so many thousands mm-hmm. of you know all the those online kids who came into the game all of a sudden. What's right. your relationship with online poker over the last 20 years? Well, before Black
1: Friday, it was great. You know, the games were good. I got on. i uh, never really did that well. I mean, it did cash a little bit like on the Poker Stars, Sunday millions. I, I played those things, but never. Mm-hmm. I got pretty far one time and then I had a computer glitch and I lost all my chips uh-huh. by the computer putting me all in when I didn't do anything. It was it was doing it all by itself. Oh boy. So maybe one of those kids figured a way to to get me all in uh, <laughs> and the okay. guy that uh, was slow playing. I didn't even know he was in the hand. He had two aces and I had ace king and I was busted. But anyway, <laughs> back in those days, the uh, the kids were all into uh GTO, I believe it's called game yep. theory game optimal
0: game theory optimal, sure.
1: And you know, they're really smart, very mathematically skilled. I wasn't. Okay. I'll be honest with you. I wasn't.
0: So it's been a learning curve for
1: me, and I'm still not as sharp as a lot of them are about things like that. But um, you know, I hold my own. I uh, get in those kind of games, and I do fairly well in them. You know, I might not be the brightest tool in the shed, but or the sharpest tool in the shed. Sure. But uh, I, I hold my own. Good. So getting back to your
0: question, I got off
1: track a little bit. What no was your problem.
0: Question? About about online because I know that. Um... Even when the pandemic began there was sort of like this fun you know friendly home game on on pokerstars.net that you know I even got to compete against you a little yes. bit do you right. I mean you're in Nevada do you play on on WSOP.com and mix it up a little bit or you know Yes Nevada.
1: I I do not uh, not too often uh not crazy about online poker because of all the scandals that have you know come up and mm-hmm. I feel like there's uh there's an issue with that you know mm-hmm. and it doesn't even have to be uh cheating i mean people just uh they share information. I mean, yeah. that's a form of it, you know, and that puts you yeah. at a big disadvantage, you know, and mm-hmm. I don't do that, you know, and so it just like it, uh it just leaves a bad taste in my mouth. You know? Sure. So that's I'm not, not crazy about it, but do I do it? Sure. Okay. But I do it a lot. No.
0: Right. So uh, going by the numbers, again, I told you I have to go through, you know, there's just so much statistical data there. You have won, at least, you know, according to my count, about eighty tournaments just outright wins so among your caches again the ones that were recorded we're talking like 13% of them just among the caches are wins so like that that's pretty darn amazing also so I'm wondering if once you make it into the money do you do something do you switch gears or I mean do you always play to win or to ladder up are there any perhaps tips that you can give us folks who are just sometimes barely squeaking in. Oh, you make yeah. it into the winner's circle very often. No special tips, but uh, I say all of the above, of
1: course, that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, my biggest thing that at least lately that I, I, I pay a lot of attention to is adjusting to the structure. You got bad structures, not so good structures and really good structures, you know? Mm-hmm. So if I have the time in the, the patients, I'll approach it a lot differently. If I don't have the time, I'll conserve whatever chips if I'm a short stack or even a medium stack or even a big stack. Mm-hmm. I don't push it too much because I want to advance up the ladder. I'm not saying I don't play, uh-huh. but I'm saying that you know I want to save the chip power that I have, right? Because the structure is terrible, and I want to. Get it in on that particular hand. Mm-hmm. Now, whether it be limit or no limit, at that stage of retirement, there's not much difference because the blinds are so high. You know, you, you used to have 30 big blinds, then you didn't do very much for for like an hour. Right. And now you only have 12. Now it changes rapidly. So I'll really be more patient and wait for opportunities where I can send in my soldiers right. to do the work. So to send in my soldiers. I need a good hand okay right. it's not like no limit no limit you got you might not have to show down a hand until you get ineffective with your stack size right. Then and you're going to have to show down a hand because they're going to call you you know right limits not quite that way but when you get near the end of the tournament
0: you have to be really patient and then attack when sure. you really got the goods I love the tips and I love the analogy to the soldiers and obviously you're a fantastic general you don't just send your soldiers into battle for no good reason you got to think about your decisions and strategize I, I, that's really excellent I love that very much that's very awesome. I did a
1: book with uh, Dr. shoemaker and it was for oh, tournaments okay. um, for making deals uh-huh. and I classified uh, those really tough players as generals or uh-huh. So they, <laughs> those are the guys that they, like T.J. Coutier Never make a deal. You know they just don't do it. You know, I mean he has, but not too often. You know, and I remember telling you I beat TJ heads up instead of then at uh, Foxwoods
0: mm-hmm. with no deal,
1: and that's when I was floating out of air. You know, wow, <laughs> fifty thousand dollars all mine. You know,
0: no deal. And is there a particular circumstance when you're at a final table and you know things are getting whittled down where you would? I mean, even let's say all things being equal as far as chip stacks and stuff, and you see some tough competitors. Will you be the one to initiate, hey, let's sort of make a deal or does it matter how much money is at stake? and you know, what are the Well, factors? if you
1: read the book, I always say, don't ever let them see you sweat. That's the number one rule. So if you're the one offering the deal, you probably gotta, you know, depends who who's there at the table. Mm. There are people that just won't deal. So you would never ever tell them, hey, you wanna make a deal? Cause mm. they're gonna take that as weakness. So no, I don't do it. Mm into those circumstances now if it's a more of a social type thing where i'm playing with players that i play with all the time on the local scene i'll do it okay. I'll say, hey you guys want to you know uh i usually do uh icm mm-hmm. when i'm the lower stack and i try to do the chip model when i'm the higher stack because you get more money that way right because uh, <laughs> well, that's how i kind of suggest it. not to be i want to be fair to myself too you know sure I feel, of course i'm uh A better player, and I've been definitely got more experience than most of those people. So that's for uh, sure. I feel like I I should get some sort of
0: concession, you know,
1: and sometimes I'll make a concession, you know. Um,
0: I got two more questions of my own before we move into the community questions, uh, if that's all right. So the first one I ask is so many of your results have obviously come all across the, the great United States of America. Of course, you've been living in Las Vegas for quite a while for decades. Where else uh, in the U.S. do you particularly enjoy playing poker and why? Well, prior to
1: age 70, okay? I have a lot of results at the Taj Mahal in Atlantic City. I also have a lot of results at Foxwoods. lots of trophies. You know, matter of fact, the guy had told me that I had one more trophy than he did at the Taj Mahal. So I have the the record of, of trophies anyway. Uh-huh. Taj Mahal uh-huh. um, i say what was your question again
0: So it's Sorry. where besides uh, Las Vegas do you particularly oh, yes. enjoy yes. playing so the east coast I really had a
1: good time because I'm Italian and all my relatives are east coast so I uh-huh. get to go back and spend time with the relatives and the cousins and it was just a lot of fun you know uh, most of my play was on the west coast right. usually the commerce or the bicycle club mm-hmm. lots of lots and lots of caches over there lots of trophies over there so those are my favorite places but uh one of the best times of my life i had a uh, a backer oh he took me all over europe huh. So i got to play in london paris and this was tournaments not cash right i played cash on my own and then um where else did we go we went to kiev one time Wow! i know i know it was really nice we did some uh, WSOP in France and we did some WSOP in London. That lasted for about two and a half years. And I oh. wouldn't take this gig because I get to live in a villa at the French Riviera. <laughs> I mean, who gets an opportunity like that? You know, That's unbelievable. And uh, yeah, his name was Lance Funston. Wonderful, wonderful man. Nice family. And, uh, you know, it was really, really... A, uh, I got
0: to see the, how the other half lived. You know, it was really... Pretty, pretty good. And, and you, uh, like, you got to see outside the poker rooms also and like tour all those places. Oh, yeah, I did.
1: I already toured those countries before as, when I was in the in the service. and Oh, goodness. And as a tourist, I've already done that. Huh. But, uh, you know, to sit there and have uh, cooks come in and cook for you. And I mean, wow, you know, waiters going to the table and pick up. You yeah, had dinner parties that were just utterly fantastic followed by a poker tournament. You and mean, it would be like eight people, nine people, you know, uh, some uh, let's see, were really no professionals. They were just like a bunch of
0: Frenchmen. Right, right. I don't want to say anything <laughs> about
1: the France, but for some reason when I played in France, they liked to slow roll you there. I don't know. <laughs>
0: Biggest slow rollers. I, uh, I shouldn't, Yeah, you know, it's not fair to say, all of them are like that, but that's, that, of I, I course. see quite a few. Of course. I said only one more question, but I, I'd be remiss if I didn't pick up on one thing you said. You said, uh, when I was in the service, can you just oh, tell yeah. us a little bit about your time serving uh, You know, in the armed forces? What did you what did you do, and uh, do you look back upon that time with any particular fondness?
1: Yeah, probably one of the best times of my life. Um, we played poker, of course. We played payday stakes, so we played 25, 50 cents. My Mm -hmm. pay as a private was $150 a month, I think, or less. And uh, at the end of the month, I'd be over there collecting, you know, $30 (laughs) here, $40 there. So my pay was closer to $300 a month. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I was stationed in Italy. I got very fortunate. It was during Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had an accident when I was training and it kind of injured my back and they put me in a Took me out of infantry. Thank God I probably wouldn't be here talking to you if I went to Vietnam in the infantry. And Mm -hmm. they put me in a different MOS. It was called the communications. So I worked in a communications center. Hmm. And uh the CEO of the center really uh took a liking to me because I was a college graduate and uh, you know, not too many people in the service were college graduates. Right. So he had me do all this. I was like his uh secretary, you might say. I did all the reports and he just loved it and uh, So one day he says, John, I want to know if you want to go to officers, candidate school in Fort Benning, Georgia. So then I would be a first lieutenant and you know where I'm going after that, I'd go to Vietnam, you know. But at that particular time, and I was still kind of patriotic, I thought about, you know, I would like to be an officer. But at that particular time, every weekend I got to go to Florence, Italy and party with two exchange programs, all the women from Florida State University and the University <laughs> of Florida. There were 98 women and me. That's pretty good odds. Now, there were two other guys. And the two other guys played poker. Sometimes we'd have a poker <laughs> in this great big villa in Florence. And uh, I was popular because I'd bring the Budweiser. Right. <laughs> and I drove a 63 Chevy. Who else had a 63 Chevy that in Italy? Very Imagine cool. driving
0: through those. Small
1: straights with a 63 Chevy. I cannot. That that does sound
0: like some glorious good old days.
1: Yeah. So I had a wonderful time in the service, you know. Could have gone the other way,
0: but I was fortunate and it didn't. Good thoughts. It's always very cool to hear uh, those sorts of stories. Thank you for sharing that. Um, One more question uh, from me before we move to the uh, community questions. Uh, You know, you obviously had a front row seat to a lot of uh, poker's history. Do you have any particular hopes For the game? And how about, you know, beyond continuing to, you know, hold the record for most caches, do you have, uh, you know, any thoughts about what you'd like your own poker legacy to be? I do. I jotted down a
1: few things um, because I figured I'd get a question like that. And uh, Um, what I would like to see is mixed games rise to the level of no limit poker. Preach. Amen. End the story, but seriously, when I started out in the 70s, 80s, 90, I was there, I'm sorry, the 80s, 90s, you know, Limit Hold'em was number one. Now nobody even wants, they bought it when they have to play Limit Hold'em, right? That was the number one game. Number two game was no Limit hold. So Texas Hold'em, top two spots. And I loved Omaha Aida better. And that was kind of down, but as just before the explosion, it was right up there with No Limit. We got if No Limit had 240 players and we had 235. It wow. was great, you know? And then Moneymaker comes along and screws the whole thing up. TV <laughs> comes in and makes what? History with poker. We're on TV all of a sudden, you know? And what game did they use? Did they use Omaha? No, they used No Limit. And I have to admit, I'm not, you know, I, I don't have an extra to grind here. No limit is so much better to watch. On TV. For TV, sure. Mm-hmm. It's exciting. Sometimes my heart pitter-patters, even today, you know, if I'm getting, I'm in the middle of a bluff, I'm trying to be as stationary as possible and not giving off any tells, you know, it's like, oh, man, this is tough. It's exciting to watch. Uh, nobody really cares if, oh, he has ace-deuce and he's splitting the pot with the two pair. and split the pot, we'll split the pot. Or stud. Remember when they had stood on TV and I yeah. remember a hand between uh, Ted Forrest and Chad Brown. It was kind of a dumb hand, but, you know, it just didn't get, I can see why it didn't get the ratings. Because it's kind of boring to watch, really. Right. But now that people have seen the ways of mixed games being a challenge, uh, much more fun. You know, I mean, I'm sick of no limit to be honest with you, but I, I'm playing it more than I used to, let's put it that way. Uh-huh. Uh, this game is just uh, so much more challenging, you know, it's so much different variations. There's games I can't even spell, right? <laughs> who the hell thought of Drama Hot. Huh? Drama
0: Hot 2-7, you know? baby, right? let's go. And who the hell was Archie anyway?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Archie him. does live in Cal- in uh, Arizona. I found that okay he was a live one in the game but uh yeah getting back to that i would like to see a surge mixing there already is one but it's still not at the level of no one and i understand the big big prizes and the wpt's that's going to be on tv probably right. forever doing well um, but they need to balance a little bit we need to get more players coming from hold over to the mixed games. And we do that sometimes, you know, yep. we have bracelet winners, which would be a tip for anybody going to our series. What should they do? Well, you shouldn't really play a game that you know nothing about unless you got a lot of money. Right. All right. It's like I said, yeah. Oh yeah. The, the the best hand is Ace, three, four rainbow sit down and play. <laughs> they just want to win a bracelet. Right. So if you can afford to do that, by all means, join us. But if you are, uh, you know, on a budget or you have a certain bank role, you know, stick to the games, you know, yeah. Stick to the um, you know, the games that have good selection where you can choose. Well, there's a uh, two good players, two bad players, and there's a couple of loosey gooseys That's a good game to get into, you know. Sure. And, you know the old saying when you sit down at the t- poker table and you look around for the live one and
0: you you don't see them, you know. I mean, it. to you. Exactly. I've been there a few times. <laughs> I've been in that seat. And uh, your own legacy, is that something you've given thought to besides holding the cash games record? Is there something you'd like for that to be? Specifically promoting mixed games or something else you'd like to be remembered for in poker?
1: I think I've already hit that goal. And a lot of people say that I'm one of the nicest guys in poker. i good would a
0: That's all I care about. Beautiful. I don't care about that other stuff. I love right. it. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, folks, this is now the segment of the show. We turn to you guys, our Cards Chat community, to see what questions you wanted to ask our guests. We have a dedicated thread on the Cards Chat forums for this. So as we announce who our future guests will be, please be sure to send in your questions. Folks, you, a lot of you requested uh, Miami John to be on the show. So uh, we have a deluge of questions. We'll try to get through as many as we can. And of course, respect your time, John. So um, the Starfish would like to know, what was the toughest WSOP final table you were a part of? And did you enjoy that experience? Yeah, give me a second
1: to think. No problem. WSOP. So I think any WSOP final table yes. is gonna be pretty tough. Okay. Uh, nothing comes to mind. I've been there with Phil me. I've been there with Phil Ivy. Uh, not if I had game selection, they wouldn't be it. They wouldn't be invited. <laughs> uh, so. Um, some of the, I think the studs are the toughest tables because the stud players, they don't venture down into the other games. They uh-huh. stickly, strictly stick to stud. So they're all really, really good at their game.
0: Specialists, right. Which, you know,
1: which is, to me, they you should venture out. You know, that's why horse was invented, to mm-hmm. get people with, you know, commonality in certain games to get together. So they're not all that proficient at one game, but they're, you know, really good at the other games and uh the stud team one one day comes to mind uh, i had cindy violet uh david williams uh, a lot of good stud players it was my second stud event in a row and i finished both fifth both times in mm-hmm. front of my father who passed wow. away that year wow. and he wanted me to win three bracelets that year <laughs> i only won three in my life uh-huh. and I, he was there both times and i got fifth and fifth and uh I remember playing with David Williams, and this is kind of the the plays you're up against when you get to the final table. I said, David, don't you ever take a free card? You know, (laughs) he's so aggressive. And he says, the only reason why you don't is because I'm afraid I'd be given one.
0: Uh
1: (laughs) If you're you're up against guys uh, that kind of mentality, you know, you got a tough table. Uh And you get a lot of cream that rises, especially in the Omaha tournaments, cream. You know, cream really
0: rises in the Obama. That's you know, for the sure. O8's um horses. Yeah, Sure. Uh, Neptunus888 has this question for you, John. How do you deal with tilt after taking a tough beat on the bubble? Go have a drink. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's fair. Uh, the old John would have probably ranted and raved, mm-hmm. been pissed off would have you know carried it for a week the new john says most of the time nice hand and walks away now how i acquired that we've already talked about how i've gotten to that point Mm -hmm. so there's two different types of my career two different people the the first john who came over wasn't that sophisticated in poker was an emotional wreck as far as you know getting angry and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and through the tutoring of friends and books and just self-help stuff, uh, meditation, I was able to tone it down quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So I'm proud of myself, who I am now. Uh, Am I perfect?
0: Nope. No, who is, right? Uh, (laughs) Love Poker has a question for you like this. Um, Have you ever played against Stu Unger and if so, was his hand-reading ability as legendary as the people say that it was?
1: It was spectacular.
0: Mm.
1: He was that freaking good. Okay, now we played some cash games. Now, I got in, uh, he, we played, uh, he came down to our level, 75, 150, went in 200, Omaha better. And he wasn't that good of an Omaha player, but he learned very, very mm-hmm. quickly. And it was limit, you know? Um, one time, he had made the nut flush on the river and he check raised in a four handed hand. There were four people in the hand. And I said, Stewie, I would always bet because I'm afraid I'm not going to get anybody to bet for me. He right. got the bet. He got the check raised. He and I only got one. He got two calls All right. That's how clever the guy was. And, you know, to, his, uh, to put a feather in his cap, he really was very, very good. He went downhill a little bit. One other time I played with He was in a tournament, very first time I ever played with him. And the flop was Queen Jack and he had Queen 10. I had 10-9, I was in the big blind. And I wasn't, this was in the years just probably right after I got broke or just before I got broke, I don't quite remember, but uh, I moved in on him with a draw okay just something i wouldn't do now so i had up and down 10 9. and he didn't think about it he just said two words to me draw call so wow he knew i was drawing and he called me instantly wow and you know and then i remember another guy was at the table his name is yosh and yosh said oh, uh, yosh- King 10 John." i said nope 10 9. <laughs> so, and then just to make matters worse, I paired my 10, no, my nine.
0: Sorry, I have to say like also, I, this, this I, to me like, I get to hear from a lot of poker players who play for so many. It just always astounds me. Your card recall, your hand recall. It's just, it's like you have a that, you know, identic memory. Like you can put yourself right back there at that table and only, see the cards. Yeah. Above.
1: And that's really important when you're learning poker because you have to be able to describe what happened i am somebody. Right. i have a few students and they go on and on and on and then they change the story but i thought you said you had this oh i had that oh no i didn't. yes i don't have that problem i always remember pretty Goodness. much everything now what i don't remember when people come up to me said john remember that hand eight years ago <laughs> i don't even know their face much less <laughs> a hand eight years ago and they That's want to bad. rub it in how i sucked out
0: on their quads or whatever you know oh, uh, whatever uh, but, uh, I don't remember that well, but uh, yeah,
1: particular hands and scenarios. I'm pretty good at.
0: Okay. Uh, Maddie Bumpo has sort of a, I guess, a strategy question. What is the most important concept to keep in mind for a player who's trying to switch from no limit, hold to Omaha eight or better.
1: Same thing that we discussed before. It's two different conditions. It's not hold to Omaha. It's no limit to limit. All right, so to, to me, the basic difference is: in no limit poker, you don't have to show down a hand. In limit poker, you almost always have to show down your hand. So the, the switching over is pretty much have the goods when you come at when you come into the pot. If you don't have the goods when you come out of the pot, you know um, you have to know your opponents and you have to be able to bluff. You have to sell some sort of a story right if the story doesn't make any sense don't try it in limit poker you're only gonna you know get called
0: for sure
1: no limits different you can get away with with right. a lot more so that's to me that's the most important thing is just not to think of hold them in omaha to think of no limit and limit and mm-hmm. that goes with any limit game whether it's
0: ras studs stud ate a better absolutely you know it's a, it's a different mindset and before we move on to the next question, just for folks who are listening, I do want to apologize. I can't ask every single question you submitted, and also John has answered many of them in the other uh, answers that he's given. So thanks for everyone who has submitted questions. Uh, here's a, a one from Right Field from Acid Burn FX. Uh, not necessarily at the poker table, John, but what is the biggest lie that you have ever told and gotten away with it? Why? <laughs> if you'd like to to pass on that one we'll give you one pass
1: you know uh, I'll only pass for one reason not that I want to but I just can't think of anything right now the biggest lie I ever told and got away with man that would have to be a gargantuan lie
0: (laughs) (laughs) or can you remember a particular bluff you got away with that was really really big
1: not necessarily you know I get I bluff well, I get caught, I get away with it, you know. Um, I know one thing is that when I am bluffing, I just try to stay focused on the pot and I don't try to give off any tells. Mm -hmm. Uh, But as far as straight out lying, I just
0: can't come up with anything like that. That's fair, no problem. Um, Here's an interesting one. Kun Aguero Cruz, I hope I got that name correct, wants to know, has your degree in finance helped you as a poker player? At all? Not at all. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, perhaps with bankroll management and something like that, or just really completely unrelated.
1: Bankroll management to me is that's a life lesson and and common sense, you know. So uh, having. Uh, degree in finance you know that's which i've never used by the way mm-hmm. uh, and i'm a terrible businessman by the way so you know thank god that, you know i have my poker skills because if i had to make it on business i don't think i would do very very well
0: okay uh crystal uh uh-huh. okay crystals has this one for you um you know obviously not rubbing anything in but just matter-of-factly saying that you have not had a six-figure cash in many years. Is that a goal of yours to get back to making more six-figure caches?
1: Yeah, I haven't played that many six-figure caching-type tournaments.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, with the exception of the WSOP and a mm-hmm. few WPTs. And she's totally right. It's been a while. It nags on me, I but I mean, there's been so many times that I've gotten right to the cusp of you know 13 14th place and just one hand goes wrong and that's all it takes and there goes your six-figure cash Mm -hmm. this has been going on for quite some time i'd say at least 12 years Mm -hmm. and part of the reason too at the wsop is the players you know they're not unskilled they come from different areas of the country some of them is dead money you see more dead money i think in no limit but you don't see it that much dead money in, in limit poker i mean there is but not that much right so you're always you're always up against a tougher field but uh i don't have any excuses you know like oh i just ran bad or you know mm-hmm. or uh, they got lucky you know that's just the usual standard things that happen to you along the way sure. uh, so that's probably the reason i really don't have any excuses for it but uh
0: doesn't mean i'm not going to try and
1: i'll probably cash one this year okay. but i'm always trying
0: i hope so for yours. That, that would be really i remember good.
1: i remember i was on
0: the cusp of going to the top three
1: in a big PLO 8 or better and Devilfish sucked out on me well actually i sucked out on he <laughs> didn't raise the pot we got it all in set over set but i had a flush draw and i hit the flush on the turn Nice. I don't know, back then you didn't show your cards right away he says well I got a flush and I showed him he says oh you put all that money in with a flush drawer I said no we got a set of eights too <laughs> right. and the board paired quad queens for him Oh, yeah so things like that happen you know, right. so I'm 12th he went all the way to second or third place on those chips you know? right and, there you go I remember another time I was uh, against Max Pescatori in a big horse event and I, I raised and studied a better and I have aces and he got it all in on Fifth Street. He was trying to represent a low, but he had pocket jacks. And I said, well, I got aces. He great. You got aces? How is that possible? <laughs> I said, yeah, I do. I said, well, don't worry. He, he catches a jack. Oh, gosh. I said, don't worry, Max. I try to be positive. There's still two more aces in the deck, right? And I was totally right. And he got both of them. <laughs>
0: goodness just Uh, to rub it in exactly um let's so let's do two more to end off is that all right we'll do two more yeah sure okay cool uh chica bonita says your son also plays poker have you ever participated in any tournaments together or played against each other
1: we do every year we play the seven card stud WSOP. that's the only event he plays now so he's not really a poker player Uh, but I taught him stud he likes the game and that's the only thing he knows the only thing he plays and as a father I felt I don't really want to make my kid come out to Vegas become a professional gamer let him do other things you know let him find his own time so I just never never pushed it and he never went any further than stud and he got to play you know he got good experience he's played against Ivy he's played against uh, a lot of good stud players you know and uh, he just doesn't have a lot of exposure you know doesn't play that often. Once a year is just not enough. Once in a while, we'll go to the Congress and we'll play the L.A. Classic and they'll have a, a, a championship event for Stutter. They used to anyway.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And uh, I remember he got uh, crippled by James Woods in a hand. And uh, James had the worst hand, of course. And <laughs> my, son, my son just laughed. And he he said made some reference to him as the family guy. And... Uh, <laughs> I guess there's something where he picks up candy. It's, uh, I don't know. He said, oh, just a piece of candy. He's putting his chips in. Oh, a piece of candy.
0: A piece of candy. <laughs> oh, kind of giving it to my son, but in a, in a friendly way, of course. Right, of course. Uh, our last question comes to us from Nasty Bent Gorilla. That is the person's name. <laughs> it's a very creative name. Um, and, you know, you could take obviously take a moment to think about this one if you'd like a uh, nice question to end off on. Uh, obviously, you've uh, played poker, you know, most of your life what would you say is one of, if not the most important lessons that you've learned from all your years playing as far as how that's impacted the rest of your life? And you can take a moment to think about that.
1: You talk Are talking about a life lesson or poker? A life lesson that you've learned from all of your years playing poker. I think we've already hit on it and that's my emotions. Mm-hmm. To keep control of your emotions and, uh, I know the new influx of players don't seem to have that kind of a problem. They seem to be pretty well grounded. Uh, you know, they know where they're going, they know what they're doing, you know, that type of thing. But uh, when I learned poker, uh, there are not a lot of good role models. I mean, I could tell you stories that you'd say, what? You know, they did that, you know, yeah. So, you know, um, I had a, I had some tough times. I really did. I just like would get very angry. I'd take it out on a dealer, you know, you know, be mean, mm-hmm. you know, that type of thing, which was totally wrong. I knew it was totally wrong, but nevertheless, I saw other people do it. So I kind of learned that, and it just took me to a level where I was just not very happy about myself. So especially after I came back from my Bust out in Daytona Beach and go going to the Las Vegas Hilton to deal. Uh, certainly had uh, a better outlook, not because I was dealing, because I already had dealt before the Stardust, but uh, just a more professional outlook and needed to manage my emotions much better. Mm-hmm. And that I was always a work in progress. But over, like I said, with the coming of Money Maker and the new breed of poker players and, and television. Uh, and my meditation and everything like that, I was able to, to get past. So that is a very impactful in my life because without that, I might be the
0: same person I was 20 years ago. Beautiful. Uh, and so I'm going to be doing my wrap up. So don't uh, hang up the phone or anything like that, John. I just want to just finish up the show. I want to thank everyone for sending in questions for John Sunudo. And again, remind you all uh, out, out there in the card Chat community, we'd love for you to submit your questions for our future podcast guests in the dedicated thread on the forums. Guys, please be sure to give us a good review on iTunes and spread the word via your social media channels if you'd like the show. John, thank you again very much. Thank you all for tuning in (laughs) once again to another episode of the Cards Chat Podcast. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter at Life. I'm Robbie Straczynski. That's Miami John Cernudo. I wish you all a wonderful day. Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community.